Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Holly Hassel about feminist pedagogy, teaching online, two-year colleges, student success, and the future of rhetoric and composition. Holly Hassel is professor of English at North Dakota State University. She was previously a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin Marathon County for 16 years, a two-year open access campus, and served as editor of Teaching English in the Two-Year College from 2016 to 2020. I actually reached out to Holly to see if she'd be interested in having a conversation with me on the podcast given her research and teaching in two-year colleges, and also her position as the assistant chair of the Conference on College Composition and Communication, the largest organization in rhetoric and composition. I wanted to hear more about the work she's done, as well as her vision for the field. Thankfully, she agreed to be on the podcast. And I was surprised when she said she reads all the transcripts to the episodes. So I'm thankful for Holly and what she does and continues to do for writing teachers. Holly, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start by talking about your approach to teaching writing. You draw on feminist pedagogy, which challenges traditional norms and standards attached to teaching and teaching writing. Do you mind talking about your approach to teaching and particularly how feminist pedagogy disrupts the normative construction of the writing classroom i guess i would say that like it, it can it could be a good idea to sort of define like what is feminist pedagogy and what is in feminist pedagogy and all of that i came to the idea and the literature and the practices of feminist pedagogy through like i don't know a series of different avenues right you know one of them was just having studied in graduate school feminist theory feminist literature you know i sort of was familiar already with kind of the principles of of you know, feminist thinking, but not necessarily with the idea of what does that look like in a, in a classroom, right? And then as I started my um, first position, well, the position I had for most of my career really at um, the University of Wisconsin, Madison County, which is an open access Twitter campus, I started uh, doing a lot of work with women's and gender studies and with teaching online. So I'm, I'll, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to the writing classroom, but, um, but that was kind of my route came from um, women's and gender studies and through online pedagogy. And I started teaching online in 2004. Um, and it was the completely kind of like asynchronous model, but not like a sort of self-paced, right? It's, it was the idea that like students would be accessing that course and the level or the ways they participate in it, but it was really designed our program, like many two-year college programs, to meet the needs of non-traditional students, people with jobs, people with kids, and the idea that, you know, that they needed to be able to access education whenever it was possible for them. And so when I started designing that course, I had to think about, and I worked with one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Nancy Chick, on what does it look like to create a, an active learning, a feminist pedagogical um, context or site like in an online environment. And so that became a kind of, um, in some ways, maybe counterintuitive way of entering into like, how do you develop community in a classroom? It means that you have, that you can't depend on the usual markers or barometers of like, what does it mean for a student to be engaged? What does it mean for a student to be learning? You know, um, I think traditional pedagogy often is in response to, you know, certain kinds of assumptions like, oh, we're all in the room together and the teacher is there and they're in the front of the classroom and they're telling you things, they're telling you information. And certainly writing pedagogy has, you know, kind of not, not embraced that for, for a really long time. And, um, but, you know, thinking more disruptively, I suppose, from what, it, you know, that 
face-to-face -face environment looks like when it's fraught with um, questions about authority, questions about who's you know who's authorized to speak, who knows things, what's the who creates knowledge, what are you know what are people's responsibilities. Coming at it from the totally asynchronous online environment was this, was a really um, critical learning experience for me. In part because, and now I'm seeing all the ways that it's really interesting and relevant. I had to figure out ways that. I could create the things that mattered to me, right? Like the values that mattered, like having a sense of community, right? Giving students uh, opportunities to um, sort of demonstrate their learning, opportunities for feedback, opportunities for conversation, giving students the sense that they were they were contributing, right? So um, how does how does that look beyond the model of we all show up the same time in the same physical space, and you know some of us talk. Some of us listen, right? So I guess that's, which is to say that like, I feel like that that learning that I did at the very kind of start of my career as a faculty member was really important and then shaping kind of my subsequent approaches to writing classroom. I want to continue talking about feminist pedagogy and intersecting it with online pedagogy. Was there a tenet in feminist pedagogy or a particular strategy that you wanted to really emphasize through teaching online? maybe a value that you wanted to be at the center of your writing classroom? And then could you maybe connect that value to a teaching practice? One of the kind of like eye-opening eye -opening realizations for me in the work that I was initially doing um, on feminist pedagogy and online learning was the idea that like, if I was saying that the thing that mattered to me was that students needed to be engaged, right? Like it's, that's the sort of watchword of everybody's teaching philosophy or whatever, right? Like student engagement. It, it became really clear to me that engagement looks very different in an online asynchronous classroom um but and also can look really powerful and important and like more real honestly than engagement in like a face-to-face -face classroom so if i had to say that there was an undergirding principle it would be like engagement critical thinking critical conversation and this kind of idea of community and so if i just even ground that in like very specifics it, it meant that at the start of things recognizing that like discussion was not a thing that was added on right discussion was the center of what we did discussion was the most important thing it, and so then you have to make accompanying choices about how you sort of even rate what you evaluate right it, how you center that as what the course is that is going to sort of disrupt the ways that students experience it. And so I guess what I mean by that is like, if I'm thinking about how do I communicate to students that what matters is their voices, that they're engaging, that they're participating. And it's, it, that means that I say our discussions are, you know, 30% of the course grade, right? That's, it's a third of the course grade is the degree to which you participate in these conversations, whether it's peer review, whether it's responding, whether it's small groups, fishbowl, discussions, whatever you do online, it's, that's the center of it. And I think of that as really different than Oh, I don't know. Even just even like the idea of like videos. Like I, I've never posted a video in an online class ever. Like I just, you know, never. Right? It's it's because my presence is like the interactivity. It's the conversation. It's the responding to students. It's 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 the writing part of it. Engaging with what you're saying. Making it a space that's really I think centering the conversation and that's structurally demanding that students be engaged. Which is like to say. It, to participate in an online discussion, you have to write something down, right? You have to write something down and post it. To be present in a face-to-face -face discussion means you're in the room, right? That doesn't mean, you know, that you're not absorbing or listening or, or engaging in a, in a quieter way, but um, it's, you know, for, for a lot of students, it's, 
it's not a good fit for them or it's uncomfortable or it's it's difficult for them to make their voice heard in a conversation no matter how you try to democratize that pedagogy like in a face-to-face -face classroom so i might try to do round robins or you know fish bowls or sort of other kind of techniques for you know, small group and then large group to sort of help students feel like their voices are part of the discussion but there would still I'm sure as a teacher, you know, there's still always those students who are going to feel more like entitled to speak, right? And so one of the things that I found really that like the potentiality of the online asynchronous classroom was that was that everyone can speak, right? Everyone can make their voice heard by posting and contributing uh, in a way that, you know, is really different um, in that kind of time bound place bound conversation so that's part of it and i'll say i which is to say that like i think the choices that we make about what we you know how we weight the work that students do the intellectual work that um it really matters and it communicates things to them about what what really matters right so it, i think it's really important to align those things so i've got to go back to something you said earlier you've been teaching online since 2004 and you haven't uploaded a video like, I'm so surprised by that. But I think what's really important here is another thing you said, which is really knowing what we value as teachers and knowing how that is being practiced and how that's being assessed. For you, that's engagement and discussion. Those are at the center of your classroom, providing space and opportunities for students to interact. Yeah. And I will say that like one of the things as I started to do more online writing courses is that that it wasn't that that making like discussions and peer review and conversations about reading, reading and then also like responsibility. If there was another principle besides like engagement um, that I would say is operational in a feminist pedagogical classroom, it's responsibility, right? Responsibility. And I don't mean that in the like, do your stuff on time and turn it in, right? I mean that in the sense that like, we're all participants in this community and we're all responsible for each other's learning, right? And we're responsible to each other. And so the kind of like the independent contractor of the student, you know, that model is, um, I work work really hard to try to disrupt that, that it's, that it's, you're not just showing up. And so that's why even like the idea of like, post a video, watch a lecture, take a quiz. To me, that kind of reinforces that transactional, like independent, model of teaching and learning in an online class is like, oh, I just, yeah, I'm getting this information and now I'm just like telling it back to you, which, you know, I mean, for some fields works fine as a sort of foundation, right? But I think for a writing class, what you really try to cultivate is students' ability to communicate in a wide range of settings, to, you know, to participate in conversation with others, to, you know, be able to take risks there with their work and with their writing is that you have to structure your learning environment so that students have real opportunities to do that, right? And so the one thing that I started doing much more um, in the last, I guess, eight years or so is um, I always did conferencing, right? That, you know, one-on-one -on -one conferencing with students, but making it clear that students have choices about how they want to do that conferencing, you know, Skype, phone, chat, you know, all of these different ways. To me, that's important to those kind of, that, those principles of community and engagement and responsibility is like, I'm responsible to students giving them real-time feedback on their work and to you know so understand them as individual learners and so i might not be posting a video but i'm definitely having a conversation um and you can you know you can do that in an, in an online class and i think that's something that maybe is not quite as visible right now for people who have been sort of thrust into the remote emergency remote instruction or a different kind of um virtual learning is 
you know, you still have to make, you still have a relationship with students. You still have to build that relationship. And that's what I think really engages students and keeps them involved in their own learning and involved in your, in the course. I'm going to turn the page a bit. You taught at the University of Wisconsin, Marathon County, a two-year college in central Wisconsin for 16 years. Now you're at North Dakota State University, a public four-year university in Fargo. I'm interested in that switch between these two institutions, particularly given the context of a two-year college and now a four-year university. Yeah, I was a faculty member for 16 years. And then before that, I taught, when I was in my PhD program, I taught um, as an adjunct at the community college um, in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I was. And so then when I went was applying for full-time jobs, I kind of already knew, like, I really like this student population. I really like working in um, with the, I mean, two-year college students are so diverse, right? Just so diverse in, like, every sense of the word. Um, and so that that kind of, the student population um, that I came to know through my work over those three years, just part time, kind of led me to think like I think I think this is the kind of job that I would really like, right? And so when I started at UW Marathon County, we were at we had 13 campuses across the state. We were considered a single institution, the University of Wisconsin Colleges. So what that meant was that like the English department was all of the English faculty at all those campuses, and so we had a shared curriculum, we had shared placement mechanisms. Right. You know, we were open access and that was part of our mission and, you know, really proud of that, that work. Over the course of the last few years, of course, the sort of politics in Wisconsin have changed and that has affected the UW system. And so I don't know that. So that has been really a like fascinating and so, well, that part wasn't, that part was actually really terrible. Was because I knew that it was going to change our mission in a really fundamental way, um, being sort of kind of assigned as, as, a, as a campus that would belong to and really be an extension of a four-year residential campus, which is not what our mission had been before. And so I kind of made that choice that I was gonna, it was only a choice I made because I had to make, right? It was like, okay, I know that, I, I know that there's work that I wanna do in the field. I know that there's work I wanna do to sort of help people at the, at the four-year university levels and graduate students kind of understand what it means to be a faculty member at a two-year college, because to me, there's a real kind of yawning chasm between the work that takes place at two-year colleges and the kind of, the kind of work that your average English faculty member has to, you know, has to do, has to take on, has the opportunities to do, and how people are trained. There's just a really big gap. And so, so making that shift was, was, strange I guess and can, can I continue to like realize things about the cultures of each of these two different kinds of institutions that I, I didn't know um, or that I might have suspected or wasn't aware of or didn't even realize that like when we're having conversations about students and about pedagogy and about curriculum and about assessment we don't even mean the same things like it's really fascinating um, but also sometimes frustrating so I guess I'd say the the difference is God, there's so many differences. Pedagogical, in some ways, is rooted in like, who's your student population, right? What's your program look like? Who's your teaching staff? You know, these kind of material realities. And they're just so vastly different, the student populations in an open access to your college and at a, you know, residential four-year institution with a graduate program and a research emphasis. Like, it's their worlds apart. But I don't think that maybe that difference is quite visible more specifically, I guess I'll say, um, it's become really more clear to me how much um, writing programs at especially four-year, more research-intensive places are 
um, structured often around um, the needs of graduate student instructors, right? Um, that that this kind of WPA model. Then in a two-year college, you have instructors who are, in all likelihood, like really experienced, right? They're they that's what their core work is. They teach first-year writing day in and day out every semester. You know, like my work was, you know, 16 years of teaching first and second year students, sometimes developmental writing, sometimes writing studio, sometimes interpretive literature writing, but like that is what I did all the time. Um, and so the culture of those different places, it's just they're really, they're really distinct. And I'd love it if we could see more bridges between, you know, helping people understand when you're getting a master's degree or a doctorate um, and you are gonna take a job at a school that's not like the one that you got your degree at, there's a lot to learn and there's some really big differences in terms of how you, the work that you're going to be asked to do and how you can prepare yourself to do it. You mentioned how different these institutional contexts are, and I'm curious as to how these sites can come together to help close the gap, how communication can exist between two-year colleges and four-year universities, for example, in order for these relationships to thrive and for us to work toward a better future as writing teachers in rhetoric and composition? I think there's all sorts of ways, right? I mean, so teaching English in the two-year college is, you know, the journal that um, NCTE publishes and, and TAIGA, the two-year college association. So I think, um, and there's a lot of folks who have written about these issues, um, Darren Jensen, Christy Todd, and Darren's been on the podcast. There's uh, Howard Tinberg, um, you know, Joanne and I have written, Joanne Giordano and I have written some stuff about this. Um, we did a special issue one um, a few years ago on graduate preparation. So I mean, I think I think I think the first thing to do is that graduate institutions need to recognize or graduate programs, I guess, need to recognize and familiarize themselves with the work that already exists on two-year colleges, on community colleges, because there's a lot of it. I mean, that's an old suggestion, but um, and there's tons already out there on that. But even just understanding something like the like developmental education reform or acceleration and placement mechanisms, you know, understanding that first-year writing and transitions between, you know, post-secondary school and college, which look so many different ways for the students who come to two-year colleges, that that is an important thing that is of interest, and it's like, it's, it's essential to understanding if you're going to teach at a two-year college. So, you know, that English instruction doesn't just start at 102, right? Um, that for a lot of students, if they've been out of school for 20 years, there's, there's something happening in between there that they need support, they need a transition. And so two-year college folks have been doing tons of work on this, right? They've been doing accelerated learning program like the Peter Adams stuff out of uh, the city of Baltimore Community College, um, integrated reading and writing instruction that's you know trying to transform the ways that students develop their skills in both areas at the same time and also reduce the number of developmental credits that they take. Writing Studio, a uh, couple of really great collections out about that. Um, Rhonda Grego and Nancy Thompson were the first to write about that. Uh, and then there's been um, a couple of different white papers written by Taika, um, the, the white paper on developmental education reform, the white paper on placement. You know, just like becoming familiar with the kinds of issues that because the student populations, I mean, there's overlap, of course, in four-year and two-year students, but the issues and the challenges and the barriers and the, um, but also the like the joys and delights of two-year college teaching, you know, th there's stuff that exists out there and um, you need to know about it, right? And it matters um, and it's important. 
I would love to see more of a, I mean, this is less of a like, here's a set of things to read and more of just a like mental shift, right? A paradigm shift that, um, that, that we see the work that we do in writing studies, which is about social justice, as absolutely essential and underpinning the work of tier colleges, right? Like, you know, so now on Pickett, when she was chair of Four Cs, her chair's address was called, you know, tier colleges, democracy in action. And I see like this really interesting tension sometimes between people who are at universities, especially those that are selective and that, you know, kind of take pride in that, like being selective and attracting a certain kind of, you know, academic, you know, academically prepared student. And then a, and sort of a tension between that and then professed kind of values about social justice, because the truth is like there's all sorts of ways that tier colleges are just that they're their democracy in action, right? Like there is social justice work happening at tier colleges because you are giving a pathway to any student who wants it, any student, right, to higher education. And like that to me is like so exciting and that's what was energizing to me and rewarding about being at the tier college because I could feel like I was part of that work um, at helping students, um, you know, kind of find their way to college and in part that was because for me I was a first generation college student, no one in my family had gone to college, I didn't know what to expect, I didn't know how it worked. College was transformative to me in huge ways and um, I just think more people should have it, everyone should have it, that's what I think. And I don't see that, that um, relationship necessarily between the values that are stated uh, always being made as clearly as it could be between open access colleges are important, doing important work and um, doing really important social justice work. Have you been able to see or identify common challenges in teaching practices that impede student success in both contexts? Even though every institution is different and challenges are really local, I'm thinking about how commonalities can help potentially build relationships between sites and teachers. So the things that I see as commonalities are, I feel like any, any policies, um, practices or processes or structures that put barriers if for students or that assume a certain kind of engagement with the classroom or assume a certain type of um, material reality rather than emphasizing their kind of growth as writers, their literacy development, their achievement of course learning outcomes. I think those are, you know, those are going to be impediments no matter what kind of an institution you're at. So for example, I think about attendance policies or late policies or sort of like punitive kinds of classroom practices that sort of seem to be maybe instructors or programs think that they're proxies for learning. It's kind of like I was saying at the beginning about my online instruction is like being there or submitting something on time or not submitting it on time is not a proxy for learning. I mean, it's not. But what it is a proxy for is sort of like material conditions, sort of the context that they're in. So to the extent that a policy or practice or process creates barriers that aren't connected to students' achievement of learning goals. I think that's gonna affect any student, regardless of context. I think it's gonna have a more um, significant negative effect on students, you know, that, that you just effectively like excluded that student from higher education in some way versus saying, you know, here's, he, the, the goal here is to show me this. Help me figure out how you can show me that, that, you, do, that you can do that or that you know that. Given your position as the assistant chair and program chair this year for the Conference on College Composition and Communication, I have to ask about your vision for rhetoric and composition. 
So, right. So I um, am in my first year, as um, we've talked about, uh, in the officer's rotation for four C's. And I would say to my approach to thinking about governance, to participate, you know, to thinking about the convention, to thinking about scholarship um, and all the things that four C's can do and the field can do more broadly is really driven by so many of the same principles that I talk about in, in my writing classroom or in my program. Right. It's it's inclusion. How can we make um, how can we make it more possible for more people to be part of what we do? How can we create a community that people have access to, whether that's um, because of their employment status or their uh, funding opportunities or their um, that that's a that's a principle that to me is how do we create as many opportunities um, as possible for more people? And I think a third thing related to that is transparency. Right. Is like, how do you. How do you make um, the expectations visible for for everyone, right? So it's not like a secret club or something that you know you you only get access to because you know this or that or this other person or how it works. So I say that um, because I am getting around to your question, I suppose, which is that I, that's how I think about all of I guess writing studies research, um, writing studies, scholarship, writing studies, um, you know, organizational practices. How, how can I help more people understand how things work, right? And how can I hear what more people have to say about whether it's working for them or not working for them? And then how can we make the criteria for participation clear and transparent? How can we make the decision-making processes clear and transparent? Because I think that if I think about what's the direction of writing studies or composition studies, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know what that direction needs to be, but if I listen to what people have to say, right, then I can, then I can know more about what it, what people in the field think it needs to be. You know what I'm saying? I think about um, some of the things that 4Cs has done in the last few years, um, as when I was part of the um, executive committee, and that was really important to me was, you know, creating the user's guide. I think a lot of people don't know about that, but we created, um, the, I was on a committee called Committee for Committee, a committee the Committee on Committees. And we created a user's guide so that people could understand, here's how things work. It was part of the group that worked on developing the um, emergent researcher grants, right? That like split out sort of like emergent versus, you know, not emergent, whatever that looks like. But just is the idea that like, we need to foster and support, you know, and mentor and, and include the development of the regional conferences, which is to say like, hey, not everyone can, can because of childcare or health or money or whatever, can afford to go once a year for five days someplace. You know, what are the ways that we can make these resources more available? So again, I really think it comes back to my like initial, like work in online teaching was like recognizing that there's so many things possible and so many things more possible than you really think they, that, you know, than, I don't know decision makers and policies would have us believe right there's there's ways to access things and we sh and we're better when we when things are accessible accessible as possible to as many people i'll say one more thing which is i think one of the futures of writing studies of composition studies is that more people need to be to learn more things which is more people need to be generalists you know the idea that like hyper specialized research um in which you know that's going to be 40% or 60% of your job is that's just not matched by sort of what we need, right? Like what students need, what departments need. And so the more that I think we as colleagues and as graduate programs and as teachers of, you know, seminars um, can, can do to help um, new folks understand like the kinds of skills and the kinds of knowledge that are, um, that are really necessary and that are important and that are valuable.
think the better off we're going to be. Thanks, Holly. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.